Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. This is a Design for Living Big Book OA workshop. My name is Julie. I'm a compulsive overeater and your chairperson for today. Today, we've been delighted to have Janet and Melissa joining us from New York and New Jersey, sharing their experience, strength, and hope in Overeaters Anonymous, focused on the first four chapters of the AA Big Book. To open the workshop, please join us for a moment of quiet meditation, followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant us the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and wisdom to know the difference. So I would like to now welcome Janet and or Melissa um, to share, and the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jeff and Melissa say recovered compulsive overeater from New York. Um, I'm going to share on more about alcoholism. And uh, okay, so I, I think this chapter could actually be called more about how we're crazy, right? Or even better, more about why we need a higher power, more about why I must have God. And the chapter goes through the story, you know, story after story. In each story, what's happening is that the doors that we thought might be the way out get closed for us and locked so that at the end of the chapter, we're left with the only door, which is the door to a higher power, right? So on page 30, the first paragraph says what our great obsession is. It tells us our great obsession the idea that somehow, someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. So one of our biggest problems is that we don't think we have a problem, right? In fact, we're persistent about keeping up this illusion and despite the difficulties we continue to live trying to prove a false idea, right? And it's got a name we know well, it's called denial, right? That's what it is. This is all about denial. You know, on page 30, the second paragraph, it tells us the first step to getting well. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery the delusion that we are like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed. And if you think about smashing, it means it can't be put back together again. Too many pieces. You know, we have to know this, admit this and diagnose ourselves. That's what we're told. We have to admit it to ourselves. And this is why we don't try to convince others that they have a problem. We can't do that. The disease does the convincing. Right? If we're convincing other people where we're, we are using fraud, the emotional appeal, and we know from our own experience, it didn't work. The third paragraph tells us some characteristics about this disease that we have, that it's permanent and progressive. No real alcoholic ever recovers control. We're in the grip of a progressive illness. It gets worse, never better. Here's my own experience. My binges, they got longer, they required more food, and they were more frequent, right? So they, they took up more time, I had to eat more, 
and it was happening more. And the time in between was harder to tolerate. You know, there was a time, I remember in junior high, that I would binge with my, with, I had a group of girlfriends, my, my little friends that I was hung out with, and we would have these Friday night sleepover parties. And we would call them pig out parties, right? And there would be pizza and an ice cream and canned, whatever. And I, you know, we would all pig out together, but I began to eat that way on more than just those Friday nights. And, you know, at first I would fit the binging into my life, right? And then I had to try to fit my life around the binging, right? And then my life became only the binging, right? That's what it means to be progressive. So in far as that particular story, my friends would get stuffed. They would pig out. I remember they were stuffed and they would go to sleep and they would complain how sick they felt. And while they were sleeping, I continued to eat, right? And not only that, but in the morning when everybody was nauseous and didn't want to eat breakfast, I still wanted to eat. And when I came home, I still wanted to eat. You know, page 31, the second paragraph begins to list the methods that we try. And methods are what we use to manage and control this disease. They're also what we use to support the delusional thinking that we can control this. So for most of us, the methods are diets weight loss and weight control plans, gym memberships, insane exercise regimes, you know, and I'd say it's a good idea to list your own. And what amazes me is how many I've tried and how many I've retried over and over again. And this shows that lack of desire was never my real dilemma, nor was lack of information I know ever, by the way, I could write a diet book. I could, I could tell you everything there is about nutrition. I know that, I mean, we could play like calorie count game. I could tell you how many calories are in just about anything. Um, you know, lack of information wasn't my problem. I wanted to stop and I had information. I knew precisely the foods that were problematic. All of these methods were extremely effective. Every method I tried, by the way, was very effective so long as I followed them. But, you know, and diets work. Every diet I tried worked until the day it no longer worked and then it never worked again. You know, I, I say for me, and I, I told you earlier, I love dogs, right? And I use dogs a lot. Diets for me is trying to put a dog in a fenced yard, right? And there's a hole in the fence. And I keep trying to put the dog back in the same yard without mending the fence. So I tried diets over and over and over again. The same diet that didn't work for me, I tried it again. I was like, oh yeah, I'm in. I'm in, this time it's gonna work. Why? Well, partly because I didn't think I had a disease. I thought it was just, I was bad. And now I'm gonna be good, right? And I thought I had control, I thought I had power. Bottom of page 31 to the top of the next page gives us a way to diagnose the illness. Can you control your eating? Can you eat the foods that are problematic foods for you in moderation? Can you do this consistently? And by the time we get here, we know the answer. Most of us come in because that experiment was a disaster, right? Didn't work. If I could have, 
I would have. You know, I would have found another way to spend my Saturday night. I'm sorry. I mean, I love you. I love this. I'm, and I'm actually now I'm grateful that I didn't find another way because this is, this really is my great joy. But if I could have found another way, I wouldn't have done this, right? You know, the chapter is going to give us uh, four examples to help us determine some things um, and to bring to life some important concepts. And the four examples are, you know, the one is the man of 30, two is Jim, three is the jaywalker, and four is Fred, good old Fred, right? So the bottom of page 32, the man of 30, this is an excellent example of a characteristic of the disease. This is one of the characteristics, patient, right? Because it says he stopped drinking for 25 years. He remained bone dry, it says. Clearly, he had exceptional willpower and self-discipline. And what's important to point out in this story, as well as the other ones we're going to discuss, is that the man of 30 did not accidentally trigger an allergy. Right? He didn't accidentally consume something. In fact, it's very clear he was bone dry, right? Um, and so we know that entire abstinence is not insurance and it's not protection, nor is years of self-discipline. We cannot make up our minds and rely on our minds to stay made up. And if we're addicted, we cannot regulate and control. You know, so I always say like, I have this, this story about my honeymoon, which is a good example to tell. I had come to Overeaters Anonymous in my early 20s. I wanted to lose weight and I found out I had an allergy of the body. And I, that I understood. I was like, oh, this makes sense. And so I followed a food plan. I was given a food plan way back at that meeting. And it, it actually was pretty, pretty close to what I eat today. It was rid of all my alcoholic foods but I didn't work a spiritual program of recovery. And my motivation was really good. So I lost weight. I lost uh, my early twenties. I lost 130 pounds like that. That time it was super quick. And I got everything that I wanted from losing weight. I wanted to get, I wanted a good job. I wanted to meet a man. I wanted to get married. Got those things, check, check, check. I thought I was cured. I went on my honeymoon and what happened for me was I saw other young, newly married couples who, you know, I was able to wear a bathing suit, right? I, I was able to wear like a normal size. I looked normal. I wasn't morbidly obese at that point. Um, and I saw other young brides drinking beautiful frozen drinks. And they looked so pretty, you know, those drinks with all the things in them. It was ice cream in a glass. I mean, that's really what it was. It was dessert in a glass. And I, and I took some and it was like, I was off, you know, I couldn't. Now, while I was on my honeymoon, I didn't want to stop. I was still having fun. So it was no problem. What happened was, you know, it says here, gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal and every attempt failed. And that's what happened to me. I swore that I would come home from my honeymoon and get right back on that plan because actually that plan way back then was my God. I worshiped abstinence and my food plan was my religion. 
And when I got back from my honeymoon, I could not get back on that plan no matter what, right? So what's the lesson here? If we're planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to alcohol, right? So although we say one day at a time, we mean we live in freedom each day, only, take, only taking on the day that we're living currently. But I know that what I have is permanent, right? I just know that. Um, page 34, in the middle of the first paragraph, if you're questioning if you've entered this dangerous area, right? The area where you're unable to quit on your own willpower. They say, try leaving it alone for a year. And this is another way we can determine if we are in fact powerless. We find this out not so much when we're having fun and we don't wanna stop, but we find this out when we want to stop and we cannot. I knew that I was powerless when I tried to exert all my power and I couldn't do it. That's when I found that I was powerless. You know, from this point on the chapter more about alcoholism, it's going to try to help us determine if we can quit on our own or if they are in fact, if we are in fact someone who's going to require something beyond human power. And it's going to do this by, by describing, right? By some more descriptions. So the top of page 35, the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously, this is the crux of the problem. This is the real problem. The most important part is our thinking. And it's going to do this by giving us those three more examples, Jim, the jaywalker, and Fred, right? So here's Jim, page 35. He's smart. He's likable. He's got a beautiful family. He inherited a business and yet his drinking was destroying it all. He was motivated to stop and he was told about alcoholism, right? And he made a start, meaning he started on the road to recovery and his life started getting better again. But here's the important part he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. If there's any point that must be driven home is that we must have a spiritual life and it must continue to grow. If you remember, this disease is permanent and it's progressive, right? So it's, it's with me forever and it's actually getting, it's getting stronger. Even now, this disease is growing. And so my solution, which we've been told in the chapter that came before, is a spiritual solution. So my spiritual life must grow as well. I also want to drill the point home that when Jim picked up, he was not dropped and cast aside. And the reason he picked up was not because he triggered the allergy. Like the man of 30, he was sober. He picked up because he was not safe and protected. Why? Well, the bottom of page 35 says, here it says he found himself drunk half a dozen times on rap in rapid succession. Can you imagine? So he was working with somebody and half a dozen times, six times, boom, 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 boom. He kept picking up and he wasn't dropped. Nobody cast him aside and said, oh, you just don't want it, Jim. You don't really want it right? You don't want it enough. 
No, it says on each occasion we worked with them, carefully reviewing what had happened. So they worked with him, meaning he was working too, right? I have to say, it's really hard and uncomfortable when you're working with someone and they pick up because I feel, I feel frustrated and I feel powerless and I am. That's the funny part. Of course I'm powerless. If I'm powerless to my disease, my God, of course I'm powerless to someone else's. You know, my spiritual life, um, it has to grow, right? And, and if somebody picks up, my spiritual life is growing as well because I'm giving them my time. I'm really sacrificing my time, probably not getting a lot of feel-good moments from it. You know, um, they asked him to tell them exactly what happened. So this is what we do when a sponsee picks up. We don't, you know, I don't say if somebody I'm working with picks up, I don't just let them say, well, I ate off plan. Uh, yeah, I just, I just didn't follow my plan today or I just binged again. I'm going to actually press them for details to get really specific. Why? Because we're trying to help them discover where they fell off the track, right? So let's do this with Jim. Let's look at him and do this with him. Well, he had words with his boss, right? He had a resentment. He was resentful. He went to a bar to get lunch and a customer. Okay, he's already in serious trouble. He needed to do anything other than that. I would say he, he was off track before he went into the bar. And of course, going into the bar, if he's not spiritually connected, he had no business being in a bar. No, no reason, right? That's the hospitalization period. We don't go to bars. We don't go to restaurants when we're not spiritually fit. Our text tells us once we're spiritually fit, we can go anywhere provided we're in fit spiritual condition. We also know how to get spiritually fit through work and self-sacrifice. Well, if he wasn't helping anyone and he wasn't up to it at that point, then I would say he was still in the hospitalization period and he doesn't belong in a place like that. He's sitting there having sandwich after sandwich, right? Milk after milk. And here's where it gets clear that Jim has an alcoholic mind. Middle of page 36, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey, poured it into the milk, and I vaguely sensed I was not being too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. This is a clear example of foolish thinking. We cannot rely on our thinking. We lie to ourselves and we believe it, right? So of course we believe it because who's creating the lie? The person who needs to believe it, right? It's the easiest lie to create because you've already believed it. It's, it's like all right there in your head. Bottom of page 36 to top of page 37. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic. Reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. So the next couple of sentences actually helps define insanity. If ever you're wondering, am I insane? Well, here the big book tells us, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. 
how can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? So insanity is lacking proportion, meaning minimizing the importance of certain things and making other things more important than they should be, right? So for me, a perfect example was my throat would hurt, so I would want ice cream, right? Because my throat felt so much more important than my life, than morbid obesity, right? It lacked proportion, thinking my, I'm going to die of a sore throat. Meanwhile, I have dangerously high blood pressure. I have no proportion. I can't think about what's important. Here's another thing. I would be afraid of offending a host or looking a certain way to others because I have to eat a certain way. That lacks proportion. I'm placing how other people view me more important than my very life. That's lacking proportion. Middle of page 37 describes how consequences and sound reasoning are not able to help us. We've sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there was always the curious mental phenomenon that parallel with our sound reasoning, there inevitably ran some insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. So I like to envision this just like a race, like they described it. Okay. One side, sound reasoning versus the insane idea, right? And they're running parallel, neck and neck, right? And when propelled on my own human power, I am no match for the insane idea. I'm like a sprint runner. I can't run the marathon. It always wins the race. It's a patient adversary and it can run a marathon. Right? Remember the man of 30. It can wait 25 years to overtake me. Right? I'm no match. Page 38, now it goes into the jaywalker. And what does this teach us? You'd expect him, if he were normal, to cut it out. Okay, we're not normal. Right? We're a distinct entity. We also learn that promises don't work. He made promises, nor does being ridiculed. Normal people can generally make promises and keep them. Compare this to the doctor's opinion, right? When recovered, people's words are reliable. Before I was recovered, I could make promises all the time and that my word wasn't reliable. I just didn't have the power to live in agreement with the things that I promised. We can keep our word, but not so with those who are in the clutches of the illness. Page 39, the actual or potential alcoholic with hardly an exception will be unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. And we'll read about Fred to illustrate this point, right? Fred has a beautiful life, happy home, great marriage, promising kids, successful in business and well-liked. He sounds awesome, right? So you don't even have to be living a visible mess. You can present quite well. And you can have no other notable problems, right? And I think this is especially true for some compulsive overeaters who don't reach 300 pounds, right? Or who bulimics, who look really normal, right? They don't look it. 
Well, Fred wound up in the hospital. And although he was embarrassed by what happened to him, he didn't even admit what the problem was at all. In fact, he said he was there to rest his nerves. He was depressed about his drinking. And so what did he do? He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. He didn't believe he was an alcoholic. Okay, he had no step one. He hadn't diagnosed himself and he did not have step two for sure. He didn't accept a spiritual remedy for this problem. He didn't think he needed one. Top of page 40, he was positive that his humiliating experience plus the knowledge he acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. And we know that that was a failure for him. We're also told that everything went great with Fred. He exercised willpower and thought he could stay on guard. And here's what I say. Willpower is an unreliable power source for us. It has an expiration date. All of a sudden, it's no longer available. I say, you know, it's like, it's like a weird carton of milk in my fridge that the expiration date is printed on it in invisible ink. I don't know when it's going to be, but all of a sudden it's expired and it's always expired when I need to call upon it the very most, right? It's no longer available to me, you know, and here's the problem with staying on guard. Why doesn't this work? Who's the guard? It's like, it's like when I said, like, who has to convince who with the lie? Well, if I'm the guard, that's like putting the wolf in charge of guarding the picnic basket. I have no business being the guard. You know, I, I say like when I'm the guard, I've just locked myself in with the, with the world's biggest enemy. In the middle of page 41, Fred is describing that experience of crossing the threshold into the dining room. And he thinks that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. And it's so similar, by the way, to the story told in the chapter of Vision for You where Bill has a similar thought. And he says, you know, perhaps he could handle, say, three drinks, <laughs> no more. He's not even saying one. He's like, three, give me three, give me three drinks. Um, you know, but instead, what does Bill do? He recoiled. He was recovered. He recoiled and he made a call looking for someone he could help, right? Fred did not. So Bill, who had a business deal go south, didn't drink. And Fred, whose business went off well, he did drink, right? Which further tells me circumstances have nothing to do with why I eat. Never did. I ate, I ate on the best, I told you, I ate on my honeymoon. And I wasn't eating to self-sabotage. And I wasn't eating because I triggered an allergy. I was eating because I was powerless and my willpower expired on, on a beautiful, perfect, gorgeous day. And I was without power to do anything about it. And humiliation didn't work, right? I, I regained, by the way, in my early marriage, my husband married a thin woman and within a few years, he had an obese wife. And I have to tell you, that was humiliating, uncomfortable, abusive to a marriage, really painful. I had every motivation 
to stop. I had a food plan that was perfect. In fact, it's pretty much the way I eat today. But I had no spiritual connection. I had no God in my life. You know, so it says again, not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time, I had not even thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. Here's part of the insanity. We truly cannot protect ourselves from danger because the things that are dangerous to us appear harmless. How do you protect yourself from something that looks harmless, right? You can't. On the top of page 42, it's repeated again. Willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. At this, Fred is crushed. Now, when the two members come to see him in the hospital, they're smiling, right? Why? Why are they smiling? I, I mean, they're not sadistic, right? They're not cruel. Well, they're there to help. And, you know, we've learned right in the beginning of the chapter that we have to fully concede before anything can be done to us. I love how we're being shown exactly how we can help carry the message. They asked him if he thought himself alcoholic and if he was licked, right? Those are the questions I ask someone. Do you believe you're powerless? Are you done? When he said yes, they didn't start cheering him up and offering him hope. We're not supposed to start cheering someone up right away. In fact, they told the truth that this was a hopeless condition and they kept talking about their own suffering, their own suffering. They told their stories. You know, I, I love in the chapter working with others, it really says that if someone's hopeless, you just keep pouring on more hopeless stories, more hopeless stories, more hopeless stories. Why? Because we want to get the person to ask you, what did you do? We want them to ask that question. It's kind of like putting the hook in, in the water. We're fishing. And we don't, we don't, you know, we don't go fishing with, with a delicious worm. We go fishing with like powerlessness, power. You know, there's no, no chance, no chance, no chance. And we show up smiling. We show up like those two men smiling so that they ask, well, what'd you do? You know, once Fred admitted that he couldn't do it on his own, then they outlined the spiritual answer. We have to know we're out of options before we're truly ready to accept a spiritual solution. Our solution requires throwing some lifelong conception out the window. And this makes me think of how, you know, my set of directions provides me today with a new code and a new life structure and a new purpose. And, you know, it's not easy to adapt a whole new set of guiding principles. So unless you're convinced that yours stink, right, and they're leading you to ruin, you're not really going to want to do it, right? Why would I want my roots to grasp new soil if my soil felt great? If my soil was fertile, right? If it was like bringing me wonderful things, I wouldn't want to replant my roots. But if you're sure that your soil is corrupt and corroded, you're more likely, right? And that's where he was. Bottom of page 42 to the top of 43. Here's one of my favorite promises. Spiritual principles would solve all my problems. 
I've since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I'd lived before. My old manner of living was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange it for the best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back even if I could. That's his experience and that's mine as well. Every single problem that I've experienced today can be solved through the spiritual course of action. Everyone. The steps are my pathway to God. If you told me tomorrow that I could eat whatever I want and never have to do all the things I have to do to live in freedom of the food, I actually would flatly refuse the offer. I absolutely would refuse the offer. My life is incredibly better for having been a compulsive overeater who now has a solution. Bottom of page 43, once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, right? And remember, since my willpower is unreliable, I don't know when that time's gonna be, but I have no effective, effective meaning long lasting and reliable, no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power, right? So this chapter, it closes and locks all the other doors. And it ends with the one door available to me. The only thing that can save me is an act of providence, a miracle, right? We're told that. Step one in the AA 12 and 12 says, only an act of providence. That means only a miracle, only a miracle. And if I know that, and I know that well, then I'm hungry for a miracle. Then anything that I'm asked to do is reasonable. Right? And it was like Janet said earlier, and I, I echo this because I say this with people. If you want a miracle, if you're drowning and you require rescuing and you're thrown a life jacket, you don't argue, right? With the rescue. You don't say, I don't like this color. I'd really rather the ones that strap between the legs and not around the waist, right? You don't start negotiating and, and none of it. You grab hold of it because you require a miracle, right? And, you know, um, we're, we're really in luck because this program gives us the directions and it's perfect, perfectly setting us up for the next chapter, which is why I say like, we could never end a workshop with this chapter because it's telling me I'm gonna require a miracle, right? I must have it. And how could I end it without then further, you know, expanding upon and allowing that to be, to deliver. So I'm gonna end with that.